Hey y'all, this is Bentley Broadnax and welcome back to Things You Ought to Know podcast. So this is our first airing that actually has research in it. And again, I'm very excited. I hope that this is helpful for y'all and it's not too redundant. I hope it's fun. We definitely tried to make that a huge priority. Um, I mentioned in the last one, I don't want to bore y'all to sleep. Of course, with research, sometimes that can be a little challenging. So before we dive right in, we have a guest speaker and we're going to be discussing the critically appraised topic um, on AOTS website, of course, of autism spectrum disorder, primarily with pediatrics. So I'm thrilled to talk about this. We have a wonderful guest speaker with a lot of different experience in this um, area of expertise. So she's going to be great, and I will address her a little later and give her a proper introduction. But first, before we start talking about all these different research levels and everything, I felt like no matter where we're at in our professional career, we could all benefit from a quick review of what I'm going to be talking about. So I'm going to be talking about it in, like I said, in levels of research. So level one is the highest and best level of research that we can get. I'm going to try to make this a quick crash course um, before we really get into the details. So like I was saying, level one is the best. Um, It's typically systematic reviews and meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials. So if you remember, go back to your research experience in class or what you've picked up on your own, no matter your background, it's pretty easy to see that uh, randomized controlled trials, they're kind of the least amount of bias because you're randomly selecting these different participants and things. And so anyway, in short, these are the best. So if I say level one, you're like, yes, this is it right here. So it's the best and highest level of research. So level two, close second, of course, it is one or more randomized controlled trials. So it's not as detailed as the level one, maybe not as many different um, studies are looked at in a level two, but it is still good, a good amount of evidence. And then, of course, it just kind of goes from there. If you're seeing a trend, we start at level one, level two, and then level three is our third best. It is a controlled trial. It may not be randomized. Um but this is just controlled. So again, it's still good, but it's not as good as the level one, level two. And anything below level four is is fine, but um, anything below, we kind of want to just proceed with caution. So level one, level two is great. And then once we get down to level four, um, we have our case control or cohort studies. Not always bad, but just not as good as the others. In short, it's more observation-based. They kind of called these the outbreak investigation. So they're kind of looked at a little differently. Like a case control might compare people who have an outcome, like a disease or something, uh, to those people who do not, who are the control. So that's typically what these are used for. And that was my really quick crash course on the different levels of research. If you have questions, post it on the Facebook. I'll be glad to kind of discuss it a little more. Like I said, super short, but that way you know. And if you forget what's what, just know that one is the highest, and then from there it gets not quite as good amount of research. I also just wanted to give a quick disclaimer and make it very clear that I'm not trying to claim any of this research as my own. I'm going to do my best to cite them correctly and also put them in the description of the podcast. So I'm going to try to cite them throughout and just wanted to be sure that I am giving credit to these these um, authors 
as, as they deserve. So please know I'm not in any way trying to claim this research. And if I botched the names, please know I tried my best. We are going to do our best to list everything out and really just go by the book, especially with these citations. Lastly, I just want to note that a lot of my research came from AOTA's website. They are doing a wonderful movement where they're trying to promote evidence-based practice just as I am, but they're doing it um, really through a convenient way on their website. So I'm not, I'm not sponsored by them or anything. I just want to let everybody know how great of a tool it was during all this to dive into the research. And they made it really easy to look at these different topics. And they already had systematic reviews and meta-analyses done um, on a lot of these topics. And what I'm talking about is not all-encompassing of their website, but I did use a lot of it. And I want to make sure that uh, I'm giving credit where credit is due there. So I did bring in some of my own research, but a lot of it, I looked at what they had already organized because it was so convenient so helpful so I definitely want everybody to be aware of that tool if if that's something that you're looking to find it is wonderful and there's a lot of a lot more research on there than what I'm gonna get to today now let's move on to our interview we have Lynn Holloway with us here today and I just want to tell you a little bit about her before we get started she has been a clinician for 17 years all in pediatrics and for seven of those 17 years, she's been an ASD-based consultant for clinics and families. She was the first in the state of Arkansas to become certified in Relationship Development Intervention, known as RDI, and this is a program that is based on autism remediation and it's very family-based. And in addition to all of that, she has also been a director of a developmental preschool and is now in a PhD program at Virginia Commonwealth University with her dissertation focus being on the collaboration of autism intervention. So she has a lot of different expertise in this area and I'm excited that she's here with us today. So I wanted to start out by asking you a couple questions before we get into the research. So how do you describe the neurologic makeup of autism? Because I've heard you just talk neuro and it's just, you explain things so great, so. Well, I have to, to attribute that to that two-year training that I went through in Houston at the um, it's a relationship development intervention um, program that I that I went through um, it's psychology based um, and and I, I believe really sums up the neurological makeup of, of these children well that that is now you know that that is backed by evidence but it sums it up so neurologically what's going on in children with, with autism and their brain development um, and the, the actual um, pathogenesis that makes every child on the spectrum the same is that there's an underconnectivity in their um, neurologic, there's an underconnected neurological system where in typical development we have this, um, this uh, dynamic um, kind of super highway system is like I, I like to describe mm -hmm. it. We, we typically develop, our brain does, through experiences, through interaction. And as we, we walk through life early as infants, um, our brain is building this really dynamic connectivity from mm -hmm. all of our systems, from the auditory system to the limbic system, the prefrontal cortex, to all of your areas. And it's this you know, really fast moving system and, um, but individuals with autism and is they're underconnected. This doesn't mean that, that their areas of their brain are, are low. This just means the connectivity between the brain areas is, um, small. And I like to compare it to like a, um, gravel road. 
And so, um, for instance, if we had 20 people in here with us today, I could say 20 people leave Little Rock, Arkansas and go to Conway and we would all go 20 different ways and get to the same spot at UCA. Um, that's the typical, the neurotypical brain. It's dynamic, it's moving, there's multiple ways to the same place. But an individual with autism, they have these static pathways and they're like gravel roads. And so there's, um, there is multiple, there's not multiple ways. They have to go one way. And that's why the, their ability to process the world is so hard. And, and their ability to process novelty and change and everything is very hard because it's very hard to get off of that one pathway um, for them to process. And um, as you know, because of that, they have a lot of anxiety and stress with, with change and with new things. And that's when um, you see them have meltdowns and you see them mm-hmm. go into their low cognitive states. And when that that happens, we have a tendency to keep their world the same, to keep it structured, to keep it scheduled, to keep it, you know, the same day in and day out. And what happens is we're keeping them on that gravel road, which actually builds ruts. And so what I love to do when I describe the neurological makeup of of individuals with, with ASD is that we have to support them in their static ability to process. We do need to give them some structure. But we as clinicians and individuals that are working on autism want to make sure that we're adding in and, and, and just as typical children do, we are adding in elements of experience-based um, treatment. We are adding in engagement to try to pull them off of that static road so that they are becoming mm-hmm. a little more dynamic in their connectivity. <laughs> If we can. Um, so um, anyway, so so all of that to say the neurological makeup, how I define autism spectrum disorder is they have an underconnected neurological system um, as compared to neurotypical individuals that have a um, very collaborative um, neurological system. Absolutely. And I love that comparison that you give with the roads. That's mm-hmm. wonderful visual to kind of help us understand that a little bit better. So how do you describe how occupational therapy assists children with autism? Mm -hmm. Kind of feeding off of what you just said. Yes. So I, I, I love this. What, number one, I love being an OT. I mean, it's the neatest job in the world to know that my number one goal in my job is to make sure my clients are participating fully in their occupations. They're participating fully in things that are meaningful to them. And so when you take that as my role as an OT, I'm, I'm, and I love how the practice framework defines it, we are concerned with the participation in it, that they're fully participants in occupations. What's difficult about individuals with autism is that sometimes it's hard to really find their occupation. We know that they are play, of course, they're kids, mm-hmm. and we talk about that's their, one of their number one occupations, but let's get more specific into that and to really find out what, who these kids are, what their personality is that's not camouflaged from the diagnosis. And um, so my role as an OT, number one, is to um, facilitate occupational development within children, to facilitate play, to facilitate social interaction, to facilitate being a student, and to help them be as independent as possible in that. 
Um, but it is also that that's that's my job no matter the diagnosis, right? Mm-hmm. But when you put autism into it, um, it is my role then becomes and I really, really pull from my developmental background and understanding the developmental milestones that it takes an individual to become a competent adult. And so when I look at that, because this is a processing disorder, my job then becomes really focused in what are the intricate pieces and how do I go back and I meet that child where they are in development and through a developmental process, take them to where they need to be so that they can participate. And so how that looks a lot of times is I may have a seven-year-old with autism but, and they may have be seven years in gross motor. They might be five years um, age equivalency in speech. They may be um, four, and a, four years old in their fine motor skills, and they've got all of this going on with them. But I want to look at where are they developmentally and how they engage with the world and how do they engage with others. And they may be at a two-year-old level where eye contact and eye gaze patterns were not facilitated. Mm-hmm. And so I need to go back there and really, this is the fun part of, of my job, pull in some of those other components that are motivating to them so that I can developmentally take them through a process to where they're fully engaging to the best of their ability. And that looks different for any child. Uh, very different because we have high-functioning individuals and low-functioning individuals, and, and some can make great gains in a year, and some make tiny little gains that are huge. Um, right. So um, that's kind of my role. Is, is how I see the OT role. It really um, is fun to pull in those developmental pieces in the neurological makeup. <clears throat> so a challenge to you, because you just talked about how different they all are, mm-hmm. and we know this, every individual is very different to work with. If you had to generalize the population, um, what, do you, what would you say are the most beneficial assessments and interventions that you use? Okay, great question. And... Um, and, you know, you go back when you when you talk about assessments, you, you're also going to talk, you know, theory development and, and all of those things. And and here's what I really feel like are the most effective are the ones that you can get as much information as possible. So your um, the goal, I love um, the M fun because they have these performance um, measures that you can really look at at the end. They do look at fine motor and gross motor and how they um, play a role in occupational performance. I think they're brilliant. They give you the ability and they really, um, they're, they're based off of sensory integration and um, the not not the AIRS model, but um, they're, they are formed at the sensory, oh gosh, the Star Center. I'm sorry, I could not pull that from my mind. That's okay. The Star Center by Lucy J. Miller. And so she, she and her crew developed those two assessments. And I love those as getting really good, um, you know, getting some bottom-up bottom approach assessments. You have to, I think you always do need a sensory profile, sensory processing measure alongside that. It helps break it down. Right. So I would definitely do like your goal, which really brings in a lot. It gives you a lot of observations on, it gives you a lot of good information on observations, but really good standardized data and psychometric data. Your sensory profile and your sensory processing measure, they're parent Mm -hmm. um, questionnaires. 
And so while that's good, it, it's still, you still have some bias in that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can use the teacher and, and use some of the other ones against each other, those are helpful. Um, I also think, and this is where specifically in Arkansas, we're really trying to get um, some of these executive functioning assessments down. Um, so um, like the, the, um, the, uh, I, I'm, the brief um, is one, but again, it's a questionnaire and it's, it's kind of, it's got some bias in it. And um, so some of those where you're looking at executive functioning, sensory processing, and of course, functional performance. Um, within those, so so those would be the three I would I would choose or around those. You can definitely um, do those, but those three are going to give you as much information as you can. The best whole picture. The best best yes. whole picture. But here's what: if you could only choose one, mm-hmm. I would choose the goal or the infant. I'm putting them as one because there are different age ranges for both. Um, and so, and, and they, they really, that caps them out. If you're going to do, um, older kids for transition, I would say you're going to need to do a a film is good. The real ADL measures, um, and any transition assessment you can give that you feel good about that's for older kids. But let's talk about the goal and the infant. I would choose those because as a clinician, you're going to use your reasoning to draw out, you're going to watch sensory observations. You're going to watch um, executive functioning all within that assessment. If you only have a little bit to do an assessment, I would choose the goal or infant to do. You have to observe parent interaction. Mm-hmm. You Here's why. The way individuals are, the brain develops is through the adults around them. And so natural development occurs through the interactions you have with your caregivers or the people that are taking care of you. They're the ones that take you through the world. These children have a processing disorder where that relationship is not formed naturally. So if you can watch them, you can kind of pinpoint, okay, where's a breakdown? Mm-hmm. Where does the parent, because once that breakdown occurs, the parent then stops naturally parenting and and it becomes hard and it wears them out and it's stressed and so you can really get some insight on how not only are you going to be doing um ot with the kids but as you bring that parent in you're really able to support them and really model for them um that process of how to really pull that child into engagement and that is the most crucial crucial relationship at this time because that's how all all other relationships generalize off of that caregiver child relationship and I think that observation based you know assessment with the parent is a great component and a great start to give you a baseline of where to work from and incorporate that into intervention so that makes a lot of sense absolutely so the next question I have for you would be if you were to generalize the population again, what's something that you found that typically does not work well? So when I was reading through some of these questions, um, that was the one I kind of struggled with the most because I honestly, I have had, you know, some pretty rough sessions that felt like failures. And I have had um, really hard times where I'm like, you know, you, you question you know, I think the more you know about a topic, the more you you find that you don't know. <laughs> and so um, and so I struggle saying that because every failed every time there's a session that went really bad or south and the child left and the parent left feeling defeated and I left feeling defeated, 
you know, I feel like I gained so much valuable information that gave me the ability to set the next session up to be successful. And so it's hard for me to say certain things don't work. One, because this population is so unique. As they say, you've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism because it's a spectrum, right? Every every kid is different. That's Absolutely. what that word spectrum means. It doesn't mean high or low. And that's, that's really important because that's kind of terminology that's used. A spectrum does not mean that goes from a high to low. It's like a rainbow spectrum. There's just different colors. There's just different types of, of children. And so um, it's hard for me to say there's one thing that doesn't work well. However, I will, I'm going to switch it on you. And so I, I know you probably won't like it when we do this. I'm switching the question. <laughs> what does work well? What always will work well? is giving that parent an opportunity to participate in your sessions. Um, it decreases their stress and anxiety once you have that rapport built. And um, and it, make, it makes them feel like they can be successful in a very non-threatening way. I imagine it's probably really empowering to them. You're yes. giving them tools, too, to help them. Yes, and and here's what I think is, is makes clinicians so scared to do that is because they feel like their sessions have to be perfect because the parent's there. No. What, letting a parent watch you not do something well with their child makes takes the pressure off of them to know, okay, they're just going for it, so I'm just going to go for it. And and you really start empowering that parent, just like you said. So that, that always works well. And then so many times as clinicians, we, we out of great intent and a desire to have these, these um, clients thrive, we have these goals and objectives that, man, we're going to move them to the next level. We're going to move them. We're going to break them from being lost in their own world. And that's more terminology you hear. And so you have this kid that's so focused on cars and that's all he wants to talk about, all he wants to make his life about and all of that. And so as a clinician, I'm like, I'm pulling him out of it. I'm going to pull him into the real world <laughs> and I'm going to going to teach him how to. And no, that that's not going to go well. I've got to go into the world of cars I've got to dress up as Lightning McQueen, or I can think <laughs> of the girl's name in there, um, and and we're gonna have right car, you know, car races, and I'm gonna build that trust and rapport, and through that, then I start merging my goals and objectives with him, and so, but but imposing my imposing my desires on who I want that kid to be is not gonna go well. But me going in and learning who that child is and who he wants to be and who the parents want him to become, that is going to make sure that I'm going to take him through the process of development in a way that's not so stressful and supports his processing. And builds huge rapport, I imagine, too. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. So your best success story. I was excited about this one. What would you say that is? Um, well, I, I'm... I have two, and it was very difficult to do um, this. Um, I have two very success stories that give me chills and when I even think about it. And one is a kid that I worked with from the time he was four. Um, nonverbal, would scream. Um, gosh, I, I just break your heart. Every time he transitioned from home to school, as a four up till six years old, he would scream for almost an hour and a half. Um through those transitions and he is now 20 and is starting the culinary school at Pulaski Tech Technical Institute. Oh, wow. Um, he has dreamed of being a baker and I have worked with the family since four. I wasn't his direct clinician for probably about eight or 10 years, but have still maintained 
um, through different programming. Just we we still meet once a month and and just work through this process of getting him. And so he starts in August. And he is he is going to be going to college from nine to three every How day. Incredible. So That's great. It's pretty incredible. His parents highly involved in sessions and very um they're they're not your middle class type of parents, but they sacrificed incredible things to devote time and finance financial means for him. Um his sister's an OT and um they're just they're just did an incredible job. And then the 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 one that probably makes my mouth drop on the floor is um, another kid that I started working with, I guess, when he was 10. Um, major tics, um, body tics, verbal tics, very rigid, highly verbal. So this is your high IQ um, child with autism, high IQ and um, high language skills but not good communica- communicative intent. And so um, started working with him and his family at 10. He um, moved from a very highly supported school. Um, and so he will. he's now a junior in high school on age level, which I, I think that is great, but that's not like a determinant of success. What's successful to him is that he plays in the band at his church. He plays in the band at school. Um, he got all region. And um, this is a kid who could not collaborate with anybody. This is a kid whose fine motor skills were so low. And he can now play any guitar you give him. He can do the drums and he's collaborating with the full band from a worship standpoint to where there's tons of breaks and pauses and standing and, you know, stopping. And he it's can collaborate. Dynamic. Yes, awesome. it's all dynamic. And, and then, of course, the school band. And here's what's great is that he um, is driving and he is, of course, going to start college. He's got plans. He's looking at three schools. And so um, I'm going to play a little clip from him because I think it's good to hear his communication. As I said, he always had language, but it took years working. His parents were incredible. He had great support system of teachers and therapists and and different people. I'm just going to play a little bit of a um, audio clip so you can just hear his communication. He sounds like a typical teenage boy. Yeah, that'd be great. So what do you, what does 21 look different than 19? Senior in college. Okay. If I do make it that way, possible I may not be able to make it that way, but senior college would be probably, I'll at least be having starting a band by then, hopefully. Yeah. I'd like to make my own CD if I could. So your ultimate goal is music, all music. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. CD, I'm really determined into that. Mm-hmm. Well, can I sing back up? If you wanted to. You would let me? Nobody else in the world will. I have to get late into it for good as you Oh, okay. And what I love about that is that, and you can't see this, but he's making beautiful eye gaze with me, eye contact back, but he's able to pause to pull a memory um, that he has applied to my question today. That's all dynamic thinking, dynamic skills that are communication. It's not just this language. Um, and, and used to, if I would have thrown in a comment like, Hey, can I sing backup? He would be like, no, you can't sing backup. You know, like he would just shut me down, shut me off. And, um, cause he was very rigid in that communication and, and now he's not. And I'm going to let you, you hear, so I'm asking his goals. Um, in life, and I'm gonna let you hear what his goals are for 10 years. Now, then let's go even a little further. 10 years. 
36. No, that's like 20 years. So 10 years from now. 10 years from now. 26. Yeah. So what do you think, what do you think life will look like then? It's going to be, probably going to be married by the end, but possibly, I don't know, probably start my insurance bills. <laughs> Trying to manage life. I just think it's neat. And what was cool about this moment is this is the first time the parents heard that he has a desire to be married. Um, and those are goals of any young teenage boy when they think about 10 years from now. And what's been neat about him is that he's made huge gains in, in a few years after his parents just worked tire, tirelessly to, to build those um, foundational skills of engagement. And so um, in both of these success stories, the parents are the heroes. Mm -hmm. um, we just, we as clinicians just had an incredible opportunity to walk alongside these families, but it, it was their their drive that drove us as their clinicians into how to support and guide. And if we can empower more parents to do that, and we've got lots of different, we've got single parents, we've got parents that work two or three jobs, we've got all of that. But if we can still try to work through as clinicians to pull them in, um, that really helps in the success of, of the kids remediation because I only see them once or twice a week. Um, but what goes in goes on 24 hours a day. If we can educate and support, um, that's when you see progress made quickly. Absolutely. Watching that video with you was incredible because as somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience yet in general and, and with the autistic population, I just think that it's, you know, incredible. I don't, it's not very evident that he has autism. He doesn't have any of the typical you know, the aspects that you think of, like you mm -hmm. said, he used to have those ticks, and it's just not, not obvious in that. So I can only imagine mm -hmm. the progress you saw in him. It's, it's really cool. So thank you for answering those questions. I do. So what, what I plan to do is have you stay on with me and kind of connect the dots as I talk about the literature. Mm -hmm. I want you to bring in your experience, that, that component into all of this and help us apply it so that these other practitioners listening, it just will kind of help make it come full circle for us all. So I looked at uh, some literature that she gave me prior to this interview and a lot of the evidence-based practice resources that are on AOTA. Those were huge resources for me and very helpful um, into looking at certain topics. And it's just very well organized on AOTA. I'm not endorsed by them, but it's just awesome. And I really do <laughs> highly recommend it. And so what I started with was what does not work? So I didn't want to hit on this huge because as OTs, I think we should be more focused on what does work and in our clients and, and just everyday things. But we also need to be aware of this because we don't want to implement a lot of things that are not backed by evidence. And of course, I've, I've heard from certain clinicians that sometimes evidence is unclear and they're seeing um, practical gains in, in the clinic and stuff. So we'll hear from Miss Lynn about what she thinks about it. So sound therapy is something that I found in one of the level one systematic reviews. And excuse me if I botch names, I'm, I'm trying my best here. Uh, Sinha, Silhove, Hayden, and Williams in 2011 found with a moderate level of evidence that sound therapy does not really improve uh, behavior, cognition, performance, 
or listening and comprehension and comprehension. So this includes the, and I know there's a lot of different ways that sound therapy, there's a lot of different programs. So these programs are included, the auditory integration training, so AIT, and uh, you can feel free to correct me if I botched this name also, the Tomatis method, is Mm -hmm. that correct? Mm -hmm. So those were the two that were involved in this level one systematic review. So unfortunately, there was not a lot of evidence found that they they improve those those components. Um, there were some small improvements noted in the behavior in three small studies of the auditory integration training. So that was just found to be a little more beneficial in some kiddos as opposed to the auditory integration training. I mean, excuse me, the Tomatis method. And there were no differences in that method, unfortunately. So, though some recipients, I do want to direct quote this. So, this was found on AOTA. Though some recipients of sound therapy may respond to the intervention, current evidence does not allow us to predict who will respond, what outcomes to expect, or whether changes will persist across time. So, as evidence-based as we're trying to become as a profession and we keep trying to move in that direction, at this time, it's not... It's not supported that we really put a lot of emphasis on sound therapy unless it's it's based on the individual that you're seeing. And is can I, can I make a quick comment? Absolutely, quick about please all of that? do. So, absolutely, you know, all of those things are these protocol-driven things. Where as clinicians, we have knowledge of them, but but they are definitely things that you know. I, I'm one. I, I I love. I trust the evidence. But a lot of parents will come to you as a clinician asking about these types of programs. Um, I never say, don't try it. I give them the evidence behind it. Um, but here's why those things have a tendency to sometimes make, make parents feel like something's working. This is helpful. When you think about, again, like we said, there's a static development um, in these, um, these children. There's this underconnectivity. Anything that's working on the global brain. So anything that like sound therapy is activating your auditory system. And if you do that alongside doing motor movement and, and performance-based activities, you're accessing all different parts of the brain, right? And so some of those things and sensory integration and, and all of these different types of um, vision therapy that you hear a lot about that parents want to try, you know, that's why those sometimes they do... Um, they might lower the anxiety, but they're not showing evidence on improved outcomes. And, and since our profession is very outcome-based, um, but what they might do is lower some anxiety levels, and it is doing some global brain. So that's why I'm like, let's try it for a little bit, but I don't want parents spending thousands and thousands of dollars. And they need to understand, if you're going to do something like this, make sure you're doing functional participation along with it. Absolutely. Because that's the only way you do be doing things while you're you're doing, um, because if you're just having them go to this and the same things happen day in and day out, it's not going to change the brain. So... That's I don't very, know if that makes sense. Absolutely. That's that's <clears throat> good insight also from the parent perspective too. So that was just one thing I wanted to hit on. Like I said, I'd rather focus on what does work. So I have a lot of information to cover on that. So the first thing I want to look at is addressing education for these children. I tried to think and narrow the research down to these these children's their their largest, most time consuming occupations and as a child going to school takes up a big bulk of that time. So let's look at education for these for these kids. 
So now that education is at home due to COVID too, this looks a little different. (laughs) I do want to address that. Do you have anything that you want to say, any kind of advice for if if any parents are listening or OTs in this transition? Um, Man, it depends on the child, of course, and it depends on the resources the family have and the time. Honestly, it, it is time. But I have found my teletherapy sessions have been invaluable because I'm in the home and I get to incorporate the whole family. And so I'm able to give the family a picture and a, and a means of, okay, here's some things I can do to, to, you know, provide some input, to provide some things that's including the whole family that's maybe not too hard. So I would try it, but here's also what I want to tell families. If it increases your stress, it's not going to be helpful to the child because, um, and if, if you're able to participate and do these things in a way that, that isn't causing such anxiety with the parents, then these can be very, um, I don't know if that's what you're wanting me to, to talk about, but the teletherapy sessions are great. I've walked through morning routines with families, um, done brushing your teeth and sang songs and showed, I mean, it's been really incredible. Just functional, oh, it sounds man. like. man. I, I mean, sounds great. yes, I've, I've worked on with one of my older kids. We've worked on how to do makeup and um, things like that. So things I, I'd you that are atypical in a clinic setting to do. I'm in their natural environment. And so it, they can be great. So that's awesome to hear <clears throat> just those functional things and how to transition it over to teletherapy. It's just kind of bringing <laughs> a whole new component in there. So things that do work that I found are visual supports, cueing, and visual learning. Now, this again, this is for education. So there was a level one systematic review by Case Smith and Arbsman in 2008 that showed how beneficial this was. They said it was beneficial in promoting communication and learning in the classroom. So again, that is in the classroom and we're at home now. So we're having to get creative. And I, I unfortunately couldn't find any research on COVID. No, <laughs> on there's anything, not. Any kind there of evidence. Soon after all of this, exactly. we'll have a lot of examples. On a lot of of teletherapy type um, interventions. Mm -hmm. So we're just having to go with what's available and there will be more later, of course. So can you give us any examples of how, even though this is proven to be effective in the classroom, hopefully maybe some moms can incorporate that right now and how OT can provide this in the classroom and maybe kind of helping the parents out learning how to do it at home right now. Are you talking about education? Both. The education component with the parents um, right now since they're at home. Right. And just due to all this change and what that looks like in the old normal, you may call it, when we were in the classroom. Yes. And and I'm going to rephrase your question just again just to make sure. sure. So do I have any helpful um, suggestions on how to make this where parents can do this in home, these therapy techniques and these things in the home. Yes, how right to now. actually mm-hmm. apply this. Yes, the the best thing, and it's because of, of how we humans do, the best advice I can give, and if you can um, if you can put it in your schedule, like I, right now nobody has a schedule, we don't really know, but just try to, to know as soon as, like it could be after, you know, we've done morning, everybody's gotten breakfast, I'm just taking 15 minutes with my kid. That way, I don't have to have anything planned, prepped. If you can, do it. If you can be super mom and you've got this incredible craft activity or, you know, where you're building stuff and doing all that, man, that's great. But if you can just say, I'm going to give 15 minutes at the beginning of the day and if I can at the end of the day. 
um, where my child has nothing but me, then, then schedule that in because one, it's okay to not have anything planned. You may just sit together and read a book. You may, but it's just about you and them being together and that engagement piece. And it takes the pressure off of having these incredible things planned because we know one day you feel like planning something, the next day you can barely sit down. And so <laughs> take the pressure off. But I do feel like most parents have always says, you know what, if I, instead of just saying, I'm going to do this sometime today, I know I'm going to do it at this time of the day. It works well for your child because they're static. They're going to like that schedule. And so their stress is going to be lowered, but it also takes the pressure off of you, of you trying to do 500 things and that's hanging over your head to do. So I think if you can just take time and schedule, it doesn't have to be an hour and a half. I think sometimes that's what hard, but man, 10 minutes, you can get a lot of good engagement and a lot of good time in. And if you can do 30, you know, but um, I think 10 to 15 minutes a couple of times a day is, is incredibly beneficial. That's, that's very good advice. Um, as far as OTs providing these visual supports and this visual learning, mm-hmm. what are some different ways that you can mm-hmm. actually apply that? So visual supports are huge. I think that's a Absolutely. way to really support your child. Um, and again, this is what I tell every parent. It's okay to draw it and sketch it. It doesn't have to be these beautiful pet pictures that are so cute and fun. (laughs) Um, But at the start of the day, um, just getting in and and y'all draw out, you know, he and then and then maybe your child can scratch it off or have some role in, in doing that. Just make it as collaborative as you can, like make sure that you are doing things they love along with things that need to be done. Um, but I, you can, there's multiple ways to do that visual schedule. Um, and, and it's very important. I think visual schedules are the most important thing that, that you can do to make the home less stressful. Add a little more structure yes. as well. Absolutely. Something I learned that was interesting that from, uh, my OTs that I know that do school-based yoga, not all of this education uh-huh. has to be super school-based, but, um, yeah, school-based yoga. Uh-huh. I'd never never seen that, never heard of it. But the one that this specifically looked at was a program called Get Ready to Learn Yoga. Uh-huh. And you're nodding like you know about well, it. Well, I just, I just know those movement activities yeah. are incredible. And I love that when I was reading through your, your stuff and I saw that you wrote that down, I just, I love that you found such good, good evidence on that. Absolutely. It was a, a level two trial by Koenig, Buckley, Reen, and Gard in 2012. And they found that it improved the total behavior scores and decreased the maladaptive behaviors. And those were uh, reported by the teacher is how they found those. And through the aberrant behavior checklist. Mm -hmm. So I just thought that was so neat with the yoga. And I think I'm nodding my hand because I have not, I had never read that article. And listen, I have so much respect for Dr. Koenig. I mean, I think she's a brilliant clinician and such an advocate for these kids. But, um, the reason why I'm shaking my head is because you combine your sensory integration theories, you combine your motor planning theories, and it makes sense because what you're doing is you're providing movement, um, kinesthetic learning, you're providing vestibular and proprioception, and of course their brain's going to be in a better position to learn. And so um, we've given them high input which gets them in a position to where they're able to retain, learn, and they're there, I, I like to say we're lowering their 
the water in their glass. You know, like if the glass gets too full, it's their stress level gets way up high and it just kind of starts overflowing sometimes during the day. But that yoga, because it's giving such good input, um, is, is you're able to empty the water a little bit before they're doing something stressful. That's great. Just kind of a preparatory task yes. that mm-hmm. adds some structure. And I relate back to, I think of some of those kiddos that, um, Maybe, maybe a little lower functioning, um, still able to do quite a bit, of course, but I, there's one in particular that you and I both know from Max Jr. that I know <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. And I just think of motivating some of those kiddos to do that. So mm-hmm. maybe it's not, I don't know, from, from your standpoint in your practice, do you think that with some individuals' motivation to, to do the yoga would be an issue? Absolutely. With Absolutely. And and you're not going to force it, but you have to think about what is the yoga providing? Mm-hmm, absolutely. What is the yoga providing and how can I get that another way um, if it's beneficial? And how can I get that in a way that is that is going to meet that child? And that that's where you give the give and take. Okay, what do you want to do? Okay, I know you love this. So let's do these two things and maybe I'm incorporating some of those movement tasks. And then let's go do your two things, you know, and... Um, uh, listen, there's about four kids I can think of from Max Jr., so I'm wondering which one it is, actually, but we can't say any names. So. There are a couple. There, there are a lot there's of kiddos There's four, I'm sure. and I'm trying to think of which one, but you have to tell me after this. Okay, okay. <laughs> but the yoga was really interesting, and I just have really brief experience with yoga. I tried it out, and uh-huh. I really do enjoy it. I started uh-huh. doing it before everything closed down, and I'm not a serious type girl, so I was like, you know, this isn't going to be for me, uh-huh. but there are a lot of benefits, and we know about we yes. know this. Yes. And and so I just picture all these these little kiddos in the classroom doing their downward dog poses and getting all the <laughs> benefits and the, all the sensory, um, all the good preparatory stuff to get ready to learn. So something else, moving on to the third thing that I saw. And for me, this was not quite as practical, but I'll see what you think about it. So I found in a level two study by... O'Reilly, George, Pecus, and Semin in 2011 that running and jogging for 15 minutes is great before classroom tasks to um, increase correct responses. And in my mind, I was like, this is just, that's wonderful that you found something that benefits, but I just don't see how that's practical to do every morning before school. And it, it's great. This is something that um, I'm going to talk about a little bit more, but you know, a lot of this research, it's the research that is available. You know, of course, there's such a gap in it and there's not enough and we're always Mm -hmm. pushing for more to learn things. But we talked about a little bit how the research that is available, sometimes it isn't very practical things. Mm -hmm. And and not to knock, this is a great study. I'm not saying that that's terrible, but just on a day-to-day basis, running or jogging for Mm -hmm. 15 minutes before every task, you know, in classroom, it's, it's good to know, but we need to focus a lot on practical aspects. Absolutely. And so I did want to mention it because I wanted Absolutely. to address how a lot of research mm-hmm. is like this. I know, it's can good you imagine telling stuff. a teacher, hey, if you'll <laughs> run 15 minutes, I mean, that's that's just something. Take but, a lap around right. the school real quick. But if we can teach and as clinicians how to think, okay, why is that beneficial? What What's something similar? How can we support? And those types of things, because Bentley, you're seeing that absolutely correct all of these things are great and it makes sense from what we know as OTs and how we were educated on why they are improving participation and occupation right and our goal is that 
our goal is that mm-hmm. a teach you know somebody else can help them run and all of that but we need to teach the adaptation when a kid's not going to run for 15 minutes so <laughs> yes I don't even know good. that I would want to run me either oh wow so maybe just some teacher education hey here's yes. how this is beneficial and here's why and maybe here's something that you can do instead so these are good to look at to know and then maybe say okay a little task modification here um to something different that you can do that still gives you the same benefit yes okay so this kind of relates but physical exercise and specifically very structured physical activity and this was huge i found this throughout and we we know as as clinicians as therapists not a clinician yet but just from looking at things that um exercise does have huge benefits mm-hmm. um, but this level one systematic review and meta-analysis by soa and mullen broke in 2012 it evaluated the effects on social and motor deficiencies and they found that this structured physical activity significantly improved behavior scores post-exercise and that was in both individual and group so both individual structured activity and group activities in the same manner they both uh, improved behavior significantly which is great but something to note was that individual improved more than group so they were both great but an indi- so from an good. individual standpoint it improved um, motor and social skills so you know we have this debate on oh should we you know treat these kiddos together separately there are a lot mm-hmm. of other benefits the social skills i would think you know in a group would be great but they're even showing that individual um just with the child and the therapist shows more motor and social skill improvement than the group mm-hmm incredible so that's something good to mm-hmm. note i feel like i love that there's such good research supporting movement you know absolutely so. so what was one way that you typically apply this with your kids do you have anything um your go-to physical activity a maze or i saw a lot of parents and getting creative making the little sidewalk um obstacles yes. or you know yes. however you'd like to call them with the chalk and yes it was really neat to see um of how to are you saying how to do that in this world of teletherapy or just either one what's your go-to do you have anything well I mean I think every therapist go-to is a a good old obstacle course because you can work on be very intentional and very um, specifically geared towards that client that that student and the obstacle on how to grade it up and down I mean you cannot go wrong I'll I'll tell you um, there are you know with high heavy work that include proprioception pushing and pulling and climbing and jumping and and all of those things because you're also able to work on all those executive functionings of organizing evaluating and and planning and all of those pieces so you can hit so many things within that and you just can't go wrong. I mean, that's that's going to be the go-to for every clinician. Definitely. Um, I think group activities, some of the things we used to do all the time um, when pre, um, I guess, academic world, um, we would do um, lots of great, we would plan individually with our clients for a group project at the end. So it could be where we... Um, worked with our client individually and we would do a kickball tournament with like about you know five to ten more kids in the clinic but within so we would plan on how do we want to set it up to be a little different you know and so we would do that and then we would go and we would we would play and we would we're able to take them through the 
take their processing through the developmental process of here's the idea, here's the components, instead of just saying, hey, we're all going to go play a game. And they're all like <laughs> hiding and running away and, and melting down because it's too much to process. And so like then we would bring in another kid and then we would slowly as the week, and it was like our themed weeks, you know, and and so we would go and play a kickball or baseball or um, just a relay race, but they were doing crab walking to first base, um, bear walking to second. Um, they would have to roll to third, and we would make different things up. Again, we have to take them because every one of them were different at their processing stage, but those were just really neat things. I, I think it's a great idea in your head as a clinician because it supports all you, you have a theme for your week. I mean, it helps with holidays and things like that. And then everything you do with your, your kids can be revolving around a theme, and you can grade it up and down for all of your kids. But there's something that's really good to add, the group piece, the social interaction at the end of it, for kids who have social-emotional delays. So <clears throat> I've, I'm kind of going back to Miracle League type stuff and yes. just the social component. And, you know, of course, that is not just huge OT driven yes. or OT guided, I guess, but just the social component, yes. seeing them high five each other after something. And they all have different needs, of course, mm-hmm. but there's just something about the social yes. interaction that comes along with those games and those Absolutely. Uh, activities. It's just important to make sure you meet them where they are. And don't just throw them. I mean, I remember that's what I would mess up doing. I'd throw them into like a social group and, you know, I didn't, I didn't prepare their processing for it well. <laughs> and so it wasn't really productive. <laughs> Absolutely. I actually have a, a quick little side note, funny story here. So um, my hometown started a Miracle League and, you know, it was a big thing. They built the field and it was just the kickstart of it. And I want to say maybe it was two years ago. And, uh, my fiance is very driven at sports. He's a very sports guy and he's, we're doing this whole miracle league. And he's like, I need you to help me as an OT. All these kids are different, but I need to know how we can win. I was like, Oh no. I was like, this that's is hilarious. Not, this, we, we don't win. You know, it's like, so or actually we do win. We all win. We win. win. No, it just we looks win. different than it your win. Exactly. You got to picture the whole win differently. And so I'm, you know, my OT brain, I'm like, okay, so who are all these kiddos that we're going to have and what are their needs? and you know maybe if you have available what are their diagnosis and I'll try to finagle something and they're like oh no we're just we just have a tea for the kids that need it and we have a bet mm-hmm. you know there was a learning curve and right and it was their first time doing it and I was like this is just so funny to see how all of our minds you know, we got somebody so who's trying to win funny. somebody who's trying to do therapy <laughs> the kids are just trying to have fun That's and right. it was just so great though the social component That's hilarious oh that's great though okay so Going back, the three things that we just reviewed in education, the largest things that we found, um, some takeaways. The visual supports and cueing are huge. They are found beneficial. And physical exercise is great in different forms, running, jogging, <laughs> whatever yes. you can do to try to make it functional. And that individual shows even better um, improvements than group. So both are great, whichever one you can do, but the individual is even better according to the evidence. So now let's move on and we're going to talk about some, um, under AOTA, the category was available restrictive and repetitive behaviors with play performance, leisure exp- and leisure exploration. 
So under this category, you know, this is this is huge for these these mm-hmm. children because they exhibit those behaviors quite a bit. Those repetitive, restrictive behaviors. Their play performance looks different, I know, and of course, leisure exploration is a lot different as well. And so for me, again, this this topic seemed very important, very huge. Um, there was a little bit more limited evidence as opposed to education. Mm-hmm. That's kind of harder to measure, I imagine, in terms of evidence, but. Once again, not shocking, physical activity um, was found beneficial in reducing the restricted repetitive behaviors. So even before it was helpful in helping them focus on classroom tasks and all the different things that we listed, but even with these different behaviors, it was found beneficial. And that was from a level one um, kata training. Have you ever heard of that? I don't know that I'm, I think I'm saying it correctly. That was new to me. And so I'm Googling. I'm like, what is Mm -hmm. kata? And it was very um, vague. It just defined it as structured structured routines consisting of patterns. And I was like, that can look different Mm -hmm. depending on what you're doing. Um, So what I found was, well, let's go back to the study. The level one that found moderate evidence, it found that it reduces mean stereotypy severity originated um, from, and this is, this kata training is originated from martial arts. So it reduces these repetitive behaviors. And the way that I've defined mean stereotypy, and please correct mm-hmm. me, is like these really negative repetitive behaviors because I had to make sure my, my definition yes. was correct. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So kata training originated from martial arts. Um, it was so interesting to look at because once again, something – the yoga was kind of shocking to mm-hmm. me because I know what yoga is, but just seeing and picturing this classroom full of kids doing yoga was really cool. But with kata training, I found this awesome, um, it's a California-based, um, I guess you could call it a clinic. I'm not exactly sure. But the man that originated it, he has his master's in OT, and he got his black belt in martial arts and stuff, and he, cool. he provides these services. Um, it's martial arts for children enhanced by his OT skills. How neat. And so it's kind of dual service type mm-hmm. thing and something that's really good to know right now, whether you're a therapist or a parent listening, student, whatever, is that right now it is California-based, but they're offering virtual stuff right now. Oh, how neat. And I don't know about pricing, unfortunately, but it might be really good for parents to kind of get on there and, yes. and check it out if they're needing something new for their kiddos or or just want to look and learn more information to try to incorporate it here. I thought that was so neat. And that is on karateforall.org. And I'll definitely add that to the Facebook page for people to look at. Um, so you're not familiar with the kata. No. Do you have any kiddos that do like karate or martial arts yes, or anything? And, and it's great. And, and aquatics and, and all of those things. Because, again, it's the same, same concept mm-hmm. that we hear. And I think it's really important as clinicians, we understand, again, as OT specific, again, my intervention is I'm using occupations to improve participation in occupation. Right. So like these martial art things, the running, all of those, which I'm sure there's like a set protocol because that's how you do these, you know, randomized trials, right. those systematic reviews and all of those things, but um, is that those are protocol driven. And so our role in those things are we need to be real wise in how we carry those things out, that we we provide that resource, we demonstrate, we can model if we have the a mm-hmm. training in it and we're certified, but yet we then hand that off because, right. because what OT is, and we make sure we're doing our outcome-focused participation, Absolutely. Out, you know, things, because 
it's hard. There's so many great things out there to know about and to learn about um, and to get certified in and to to make sure that you you keep those things and understand the difference in these protocol driven. Mm -hmm. Those are really, um, those are like, like my goal is not going to be they ran for 15 minutes. Right. My goal is going to be that they were able to engage in making a meal. I'm just, or Mm -hmm. something, or let me me take it younger. They're able to engage with the tool with exploratory play and my, so, um, but those are preparatory. Those are things to get us to that participation phase because I just remember struggling with that as a clinician myself and thinking, here's what my session needs to be. I mean, one of these rigid, rigid protocols, but really I need to be doing occupation-based things. So anyways. So moving on to sensory now, this was... As if any of you have ever looked in, into the into the evidence behind sensory, it can be a little overwhelming. <laughs> there uh, was a lot of mixed evidence, mixed results, and a lot of different things. And we just definitely have a long way to go as far as really pinpointing evidence-based um, sensory components. And I think that sometimes that can be hard to measure. But hopefully we'll kind of get that kick-started and we'll have some very concrete evidence as we progress as a as a professional as a profession and we'll just continue to move forward with it. So what I did find was a moderate amount of evidence from one level one uh, randomized controlled trial, one level two study and one level three that support the use of active participation in multi-sensory activities for at least 90 minutes a week. And that is by, um, excuse me for these names, um, Fazlug, Baran, 2008, Thompson in 2011, Wu and Leon, 2013, um, Wang, Wong, and Huang, and Su in 2010. Again, excuse me for the names, but that was something that we found in all three of those, um, all of those different studies, was that multi-sensory activities for at least 90 minutes per week is very beneficial. So once again, in all of the other ones, uh, the results were very mixed. But the biggest win for us with sensory that I found in uh, my search was a moderate amount of evidence from three level one randomized control trials to support the ARIS sensory integration. So that specific method seemed to be more beneficial than just a sensory-based approach. So using that one in particular. Uh, was proven to improve occupational performance of individualized goal areas, improve sleep even, decreased autistic mannerisms, reduce caregiver burden, and as measured in clinical, home, and community environments. So that had a lot of benefits. Mm-hmm. And just, just from looking at it, even without overanalyzing it, you think about these sensory activities and how, you know, th- a lot of them are exercise-based. And so... It makes sense that they would do a lot of a lot of those, mm-hmm. um, but overall, there was moderate evidence that the air sensory integration approach can improve ADL performance and childhood occupations. So I wondered if you how did you how do you use a sensory based approach? Do you do the sensory based? Do you use airs specifically? What do you do with this you population? Know, I so I went through a. Um, three-day training from the Star Center, and that's Lucy Jo Miller's approach. But, you know, understanding this theory of sensor FSI um, and just the evolution of it all, um, 
Absolutely use sensory, sensory intervention, sensory things in um, my approaches. Here's what I think is really important, and AOTA does a good job in the, I think it's the Choosing Wisely campaign, where it really recommends us to make sure we're not doing sensory integration therapy, documenting it, our goals revolved around it, unless we have really strong backing from assessment choice and evaluation data. Um, and so, because I think we really need to be documenting this well because the research, you know, as you can see, is, is not strong. Um, but I think you're seeing a trend, Bentley. I think you're seeing a trend in what supports processing. And there's a lot of movement pieces. And the movement is because it uses your whole brain. I Absolutely. Mean, it's your ideation, your coordination, your fine motor, your gross motor. You have to think, plan, evaluate. Movement is so beneficial to brain development mm -hmm. and so beneficial to, if, if it's beneficial to brain development, it's beneficial to improving these children and their participation in life. And so, and I think that's what sensory again does. Um, the air sensory integration, I love that you found that study um, because what happened is, you know, Gene Ayers, the guru that we've <laughs> all heard and, and just think so much of. So she started this theory of SI and we've had, you know, done sensory model um, and different things branch off Lorna Jean King and the star center and all of that. And so the heirs foundation decided we really need to coin what's different about ours. And they really hit on the neurological pieces, which I think are, are a little bit easier to, to um, study. Absolutely. They're, they're a lot kind easier to objective, measure. Yes. It gives a little bit more objective things. And so, but, but you know, there's such validity to them creating this ASI model. And I don't know the, the ease, the easy, I think is it's E-A-S-I. Um, I, I really would love to, to learn how to give that assessment and stuff. And I, I don't know if you still have to go through certification to be SIPT. So to understand like you did with the SIPT cert, the SIPT evaluation, you had to be very highly certified to do that. And so I don't know the, the recommendations at this point. So that's good information. That would be something to look into for mm -hmm. sure. So now I want to move on to something that you've been talking about the entire time we've been talking is parent involvement and mm -hmm. all the benefits I found of involving those parents in this process. So the article that you shared with me actually that by Pickard, Kilgore, and Ingersoll in 2016, um, of course, there's a huge push for evidence-based practice, especially with um, children with autism spectrum disorder and researchers that are working with this, I, this is what I touched on earlier that I wanted to come back to. Um, they're super motivated, or excuse me, they are motivated, but they're pulling in people that are motivated to learn more. And they typically have a high socioeconomic status and they're ethnic majority families. So these are the people that are willing to participate in the research and that are helping push for it and pioneer it. And that's great, we need that. But that's not the only population Absolutely. like this. They're not always going to be like that. And, and we know that from working, no matter what population you work with, it's not always like that. So with that being said, there's a research to practice gap that um, the research that is found effective is often hard to, to reproduce because of the time that's put into it, the cost, the motivation of the participants, and just the complexity of it all. So sometimes it's not that practical. Um, and parent intervention is wonderful, but this this article 
you know, really hit on how it's underutilized mm-hmm. based on the success. And I do want you to talk about here in just a minute about, you know, it's not a lot, it's largely not funded. Right. And so I want to hit on that. But first of all, the, the level one systematic review by Altoff, uh, Dahman, Hope, and Osterall in 2019, they found such strong evidence for the effi- the efficacy, excuse me, of parent-mediated intervention that it increases the child's joint attention. So that's less object-focused fo- play. And mm-hmm. I think of those children, specifically the younger ones, and how they interact so differently. And they, they're not social. And it is very object-focused and not interactive play. Mm-hmm. And so just me, like, just visualizing that and trying to put myself in the shoes of the therapist. And that's just seems like a huge win mm-hmm. and bringing those parents in can make such a difference in that is Absolutely. incredible. And in addition, there was moderate evidence for improved language scores, expressive language, nonverbal communication, initiation and response to interaction, behavior, play, adaptive functioning, Overall ASD symptoms and social communication. That is like everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty much every component yes. we hit, there shows to be improvements when you bring these parents in. Mm-hmm. And that's just incredible. And I just, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around how beneficial this is, but yet it's not often funded. Yes. So can you talk a little bit Gosh, about that? Gosh, yes. And, but it does it not make sense when you really think about development, how we even start in the world? Absolutely. We're these babies and parents are goo-goo and gaga and just looking at us. Mm-hmm. And parents, caregivers, whoever, I mean, that's how the brain naturally develops is through these facial gauging. It's not language. It's not objects. I mean, that we don't start really introducing objects. My, my nephew is two months of age and we just started bringing in a rattle. Um, and so, um, but that, and, and, and because of that natural development with that core relationship, that's how our, we do become communicators. We do become, um, planners. We do become competent. And so I love that there's that, that's why that's one of my favorite studies is because it shows the validity to that. And I think these, all of these parent mediated approaches, um, with with autism, your floor time therapy, your RDI, your sunrise program, um, ABA has high parent involvement um, in all of those. I believe this is the new that's going to become OT, and and I think we have a really good um, position on the team because education has been a huge part of our role. Um, but I think people get intimidated because they think that the parent involvement has to come separate from the therapy session. Right. And I think as we start building, like floor time is really doing a good job at that. But again, it's at the very early stages of development. It's like where ABA was, you know, five to eight years ago. And, but it pulls where the parent has to be a, a, a participant in all of your therapy sessions, which are funded. Um, and the education that happens by just doing therapy alongside the parent is, is huge. Where I think the, um, the, 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 the problem is, is um, where, like you really talked about the, the types of groups that are participating in these most or high socioeconomic right. status, certain ethnicities. That's where I love working with allied health professions regardless. And, and us as a group of professionals feeling, learning how to adapt these best practice areas so that there is not disparities. 
right. to access so that there's not. And so how do we, how can we do this no matter the associate? Because it looks different. Because here's the thing with autism. We said if you've met one child with autism, you've met one child. That means also you've met one family mm-hmm. that has a child because every one of them has different needs. Every one of them has different circumstances. And we have to individualize our treatment based upon, if, if we're pediatric clinicians, based upon the needs of the family for that child. Um, and and learning how, working through, I mean, you can do simple things by just, you know, having pictures of a therapy session if they can't come. Um, videoing, now that we're forced into this world of technology, we've got more HIPAA compliant, you know, means to, to show them and to bring the parent in maybe. So, you know, think outside the box, but but I think with this population, what you're seeing is this parent involvement is crucial to progress. Absolutely. And um, the more we can put that as a priority in our treatment, right into our goals and objectives, then I think we're going to see a, a lot of value come in the world of OT and pulling these parents in. So it's good advice <clears throat> and maybe something for everybody to kind of keep in mind is for treatment planning and stuff. And mm-hmm. one of these days, hopefully I'll be able to just, just work <laughs> it right into there, work Very it right soon. into the process. That's right. So something else I wanted to hit on real quick, um, the needed research areas that come for this. Let's just kind of review. We touched on them throughout, but of course, sensory, if you are a clinician or just someone out there wanting to conduct research and, looking for different areas, (laughs) sensory definitely could use it. So let's keep looking into that and looking at the benefits so that we have some evidence-based guidelines to go off of and we know what's beneficial for our clients based on those objective means. And family outcomes of treatment. That was Mm -hmm. something I found in the literature also is that there's a lot that shows the, um, the benefits for the client, but not a lot of outcomes for the whole family. So that would be a good perspective to look at is how the whole family benefited from their involvement in treatment. Um, so based on your experience, what topic within the realm of ASD lacks research the most, do you think? Mm. Uh, I think all, I think, I think honestly the areas that you, you hit on lacks research the most. I also think um, diagnostic means as well. Mm-hmm. Now this is kind of outside OT, but more of a health-related concern. Uh, there's a lot of different ways people are diagnosing, and it would be really good to look at the diagnosing, um, compor- diagnostic and um, procedures of different facilities, and how that plays out in outcomes and, and intervention as parents, you know, navigate the next five to 10 years, like what was their diagnosis process? What demonstrated um, the best diagnostic information for then it to be handed over to the clinician and to the parent to be involved in intervention and outcome planning? And I think that's so interesting to look at. And I was searching for some a note that I had taken while I was reading everything because I ran across something that I didn't quite fit into our outline for today, but it was something that was very interesting. And I wanted to see if you had heard about it in Arkansas. I'm looking for the name of it currently, but uh, ECHO 
ECHO acronym, uh, the Autism Primary Care. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that? Listen, I, it's just vaguely ringing a bell. I'm trying to, to see what I'm remembering about. That's it, so. okay. I can't remember which state it was the largest in because, like I said, I looked at it, but I did not include it for today. Um, it has ASD specialists and researchers work with families and providers for early identification and improved autism care. So it's supposed to be this great thing where OTs kind of partner up with uh, primary care physicians mm-hmm. to help them in the diagnostic process. And they do a lot of virtual trainings. Um, they do screenings, identification, medical care. And this is through Autism Speaks. Yes, that's right. That is where I heard it from. I just I just looked it up as you were talking. Yes. As I was trying to it's find It's a screening stuff. process yes. to hopefully better prepare um primary care physicians on how to identify. I think that's really great. I think Mm -hmm. that's a good movement too. And Mm -hmm. I I love that OT is involved in that. Yes. But I looked and I couldn't find anything in Arkansas about it. So hopefully that'll be something that we can kind of kickstart and bring awareness to here in our state. And hopefully that can become a trend here because based on what little I found about it, it seems like it could have a lot of benefits. Mm -hmm. Yes. I agree. But In conclusion, I just want to thank you so much for being here and for letting me talk with you and for all the good insight you provided. Um, I think it's going to be really, really helpful in connecting those literature to practice dots and just bring some application based to all of this information. Sometimes information can be so overwhelming and it's good to have someone with so much experience and so much knowledge about it kind of connect those dots for us. So thank you so much. It's been so fun. So fun. Thank you very much, Bentley. (laughs) Thank you. So that concludes our episode on ASD. Thanks so much for listening. And I just want to remind you all to check out the Facebook page and that there will be a contact hour offered for listening in today when you complete the brief questionnaire. And all of this information will be posted on the Facebook page, Things You Ought to Know. Thanks and hope to see you guys next time.